You're listening to a Sun Life podcast. We pray that you be blessed by the teaching of God's word. For more information, visit sunlife.org.au. Enjoy the sermon. Everybody, good morning, Sun Life. Um, I was reading in one of my ch- one of my news feeds. I think this morning. Oh, could have been yesterday, actually. Um, so many people from Great Britain are reading that there are 300 days of sun in Australia. (laughs) And they're tempted by the lure of Australia. So um, I think that that would probably be true for Perth. I'm not quite sure if that's true for Sydney or Melbourne. But how many of you like 300 days of sun? How many of you are not, you know, like what, like 50-50? Okay. Who would like more rainy days? There's quite a few hands. Look at that. <laughs> okay, well, look, we can ship you off to Europe. You can go. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> um, Pastor Ben asked me if I could um, share today. I'm just going to get my timer going um, because we, we definitely don't want to go over time. <laughs> um, okay, here we go. Um, first of all, um, thank, thank you for caring for all of the YWAMers over the years. Uh, Shirley and I came to WA in 1985 and uh, we we started in the back of an Anglican church and we just door knocked that church and then, you know, uh, we we just uh, had a vision from God to serve the local church and uh, I I do remember those days, Simon, um, with Tech Chong and Goldie. Um, and uh, we, uh, it was a wonderful little group that was taking place there. But yeah, our heart was to serve the body of Christ. And uh, then uh, over the years, we've had people fan out throughout the churches of the city. Okay, and uh, one of those is Sun Life. So thank you for looking after our staff. And sometimes, you know, there's a flurry of students who come along, right? I think maybe a few of our uh, DTS students and other students come along as well. Thank you for your love and your care for them, and it really enriches them, and which enriches us as a mission as well. And there's a few more. I'm sure that'll come in the next few months and years. Um, yeah, I'm going to share a message that I shared with our mission a number of years ago um, that, was, uh, that ended up being quite a, a landmark-type word. And as I was praying, I felt like God was bringing it back to me. So you've got your Bibles with you. We're going to read a scripture out of Genesis, chapter 14. Um, You're going to have to pray for me that I have the, the gift of interpretation of names and people's names here because there's quite a few of them in this scripture, all right? So Genesis chapter 14, uh, starting from um, yeah, starting from verse 
Uh, we can pick it up at verse, um, verse 8. Um, I'd like to start at verse 5, sorry. In the 14th year, Kedolamai, this will not be in the PowerPoint, uh, and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites, the Ashtoreth, Kanaim, and all those guys, all right? Verse 6, and the Horites and the hill country of Seir as far as Elparan, near the desert. They turned back and went to uh, and Mishvat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Right? So it's talking about um, uh, a king who was in the northern part of Israel, uh, probably up around Persia or maybe, maybe around Syria, around that area. And he... He was a fairly brutal king, and he was allied with three other kings. And they went south, and they were rampaging everything before them. <clears throat> and the way they did that is they'd go into villages and towns, they'd pillage, and then they would take the people and usually kill the warriors, usually kill the warriors, the men. So, um, and then in verse 8, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admar, the king of Zoboim, and the king of Bela marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kedilomma, king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Golem. Okay, and then four kings against five. So the four kings were the brutal kings from the north, the five were from the south. And now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits. And when the king of Sodom and the king of, and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them and the rest fell into the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported to Abram, the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Anur, and whom were allied with Abram. And when Abram heard that his, relatives had been, his relative had been taken captive, he called out to the 318 trained men born in his household and went and pursued as far as Dan, during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobar, north of Damascus. And he recovered all of the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together uh, with the women and all the other people. And then Abram returned from defeating Kediloma. And the kings allied with him, and the king of Sodom came out and met him in the valley of Shavar, that is the king's valley. Right? All right, so Abraham and Lot were two sort of fairly significant tribal groups that had come from um, Iraq. And their communities and families together were getting quite large, so they decided to separate. Abraham stays in the desert with his tents and livestock while Lot goes to the city of Sodom. It was very fertile. 
and he, his, um, his cattle and his sheep and his goats could flourish there. So for the four kings in the north, previous to this time, had been holding the region that included Sodom and the surrounding areas uh, for 12 years and were heavily taxing them. Um, and uh, they, the, the kings of the south, including Sodom and Gomorrah, felt they'd had enough. And they, uh, this is where this is where uh, Lot is is living, and he, in thinking that they had enough troops, they gathered to fight the battle hard in Kediloma. And the fight around the Dead Sea, where, where they had lots of tar pits, and they started to get defeated, and uh, they fled. All right, and uh, in fleeing. Uh, they were able to then take Lot and his family and his goods and many others with them. And then they started to go north, back to where they came from. Abraham hears about what has happened to his nephew Lot and he handpicks 318 trained men who were born in his house. And they pursued the four kings and they even pursued them 175 kilometres further north. So... They'd already got a head start and they'd started to go north and Abraham actually got his men together and then they started to chase and, uh, and pursue because Lot was part of the family and you don't mess with Abraham's family apparently because if you do, he goes after you, all right? Um, anyway, they go up there and then they retrieve Lot and the possessions and the people and bring them back um, and it's a major victory. Okay, so um, what are the lessons that come out of this? All right. When I was reading this a number of years ago, I was struck by the fact that um, we're talking about four kings who were battle-hardened, who were sweeping all before them, highly organised, and had, uh, had a rampaging mentality of how to take communities uh, really brutally, right? And they defeated five kings in the south. Uh, Abram was a tribal chief living out in the middle of nowhere in a desert. And he had, three, he had more than 300 people. He probably had close to about 1,500 because wives and children, right? But the ones that he chose were 318 and they were men in his household and as I've been reading in the commentaries about this, it wouldn't have been uncommon for a tribal chief to train the people and men uh, that he had actually raised up in strategies of warfare um, and also just train them in defence, just generally, in case something did happen. Now, they weren't the one being attacked. It was actually Abram's nephew, Lot, that was attacked. And that's as good as actually attacking his family, all right? So he goes after them. Not uncommon for that to take place. The thing that struck me was the 318 men, probably against an army of about, of about 2,000. Commentary-wise, it sounds like it could have been that, something like that. Um, don't really know exactly, but it was a it was three or four times bigger, and he pursued them 
And he was very strategic in the way that he went after them. And he surrounded them and he actually then got three companies and then they actually then defeated these four battle-hardened kings and then they, fl they, they, they fled north. And Abraham went after them and he recovered everything. Now the application here to, to us in YWAM when I, I got this was that, and what I feel is really applicable to Sun Life, is that there are internal tribal, let's call you a tribe, <laughs> tribal core values and a vision that, that is anchoring the church, okay, that are very unique to who you are and very distinct from any other church, all right? And you may not think that you are warrior-like, uh, but nevertheless, you're called into advancing the kingdom of God. And um, those values that you are called to live by and the vision are just not arbitrary things that have been pulled out of nowhere. The whole idea of values is that they've been extracted out of the soil of who you are and are very much in alignment with what the heart of God is saying for sun life over the last few years and then going into the future. And so that, that DNA makes you you and is very, very significant. Okay? So therefore the actual theme really coming out of this year, for this year, better together, is something from the Spirit of God that will cause the church to flourish corporately. And as you look at the whole as an individual, then you are blessed as an individual. It doesn't work the other way around. It works where you actually embrace the whole and then you find your place and then the blessing of God comes in the context of that alignment. Okay. Um, the power of family. The power of family that is actually able to overcome and be mobilized for battle. Okay? So we are armed and dangerous. Everyone want to say amen to that? Okay? You may not feel like a warrior, <laughs> but the funny thing is that we are called into battle and there is a battle raging over the church and a battle raging over people's lives. Right? Now, um, yeah. The vision, one part of the vision of your church is to see a church established in the western suburbs of Perth transforming your personal lives, your families and our city through the gospel. All right, that's part of the vision. Okay, um, so, and the core values that actually serve that vision, all right, is being Bible-saturated, uh, gospel-centred, being spirit-led, passionate in worship. I saw that this morning. Uh, authentic in our relationships, uh, intentional in discipleship, and intentional in discipleship. I think that's... I think that's the core ones, right? So um, for many years, I was actually running leadership 
uh, and pioneering seminars uh, for the church here in the city. And but mostly we had, you know, most of our Waywomers, but we had a few people that would come from the city, and they would have a vision, and I would help them achieve their vision uh, through a six-week seminar. It was really powerful. All right. Um, one of the things that one of the things that's been really successful for people to achieve their personal vision, all right, um, in the context of an organisation or a church, all right, has been this whole idea of embracing uh, the values. Uh, this is good leadership training, right? So in terms of leadership training, you, you bring yourself into personal alignment to the vision and to the values of the organisation. And to the degree that you are aligned corporately with the actual vision and the calling of that church, you are, you are much more likely to fulfil the vision of the church if you weren't. All right? That makes sense, doesn't it? All right? Because if you're, if you're skewering off in different directions... Uh, you, you're, you're splintering, and so the vision can be lost. Uh, they asked Warren Buffett and Bill Gates simultaneously, what was the one key word, the one key thing that has actually made you a success? And they both looked at one another, and almost simultaneously they said one word, focus. All right? You've got to focus, and as you're focused on what you're called to, you're much more likely to fulfil the vision corporately and therefore find your place uh, in terms of an individual in that calling. I've got this thing I've written out here. It may not come through all that clearly, but we'll see. I think it's clearer there than there. When groups, churches come together with a vision and core values of that group, church, and when that group is closely aligned in agreement and living in those shared values and vision, it is then closest to fulfilling the call God placed upon them. Uh, and then I've got dot, 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 the western suburbs of Perth, which is your, one, of your, one of your visions here. That's the evangelist coming out in me, all right? Okay. Uh, when you think about the actual values of the New Testament church, let's just think about them, all right? Uh, they, they, they shared all things together. Uh, they, sat, uh, uh, they, they, they received the apostles' teaching in the temple courts daily. Right? Um, they, um, they were uh, very, very committed to sharing the gospel, so numbers were adding daily. Right? I'm sure there would have been worship of some sort, all right? And as I was thinking about that this morning, uh, that's sun life in very many ways. The commitment to the word, Bible saturation, authentic in your relationships, you know. Um, you know, you're very much aligned to the New Testament in that way. So the constant challenge to us, guys, is, is, to, is to be um, always aligned, all right? Aligned to the vision and... Any adjustments that we then need to make in terms of our lives as it relates to sun life, you know, and we have to constantly reevaluate that. When the battle comes, okay, 
when the battle does come, and it invariably does, then those that are that aligned are like the 318 that can be called out. Okay? And, um, you know, unlike the New Testament, it's just not men. It's men and women and people are warriors according to their alignment, to the calling and to the vision of the church. All right? So um, I, I love the whole idea of better together. Right? Um, um, I, I couldn't stop thinking about um, Thermopylae uh, with the 300 uh, that resisted a whole Persian army. You know, I'm, I'm very drawn to battles like that. And um, some of you might have seen that movie called 300. Um, I don't know if any of you saw that, but you've got to like a bit of gore. Um, well, not like it. Uh, um, endure it, maybe. Uh, but, yeah, it was incredible. They, they just stood in that pass. And... Um, as I went into some of the speeches and the research of uh, Demosthenes, the leader of the Spartan army, uh, it was very obviously that uh, the, the king, the Darius, was underestimating the Spartans because he did not know their values in warfare. Right? One of the ways the Spartans used to train is they'd get into a phalanx where uh, there, would be, there would be shield upon shield and they would then press up against a tree uh, that was virtually impossible to uproot. And then they would lay into the tree according to the phalanx, uh, which was sort of like a V, and they would not stop day or night until that tree was flattened, right? You look at one of these big gum trees that have got root systems. and So, you know, they were, they were trained according to a value like that. They were battle-hardened that way. And also, if one of those at the front in the phallus actually fell, there's one that quickly replaced. And then they would lean up against one another and press their shield up against the actual back of the people in front of them. And then they would lean forward and push and press. This was what Darius was facing at that time. He was facing these Spartans who, you know, the wives would say, either come back, um, either come back with your shield, with you on it, or don't come back at all. Come back with you on the shield. In other words, it was a great virtue to actually die. Um, I'm just going to just... Okay, move ahead a little bit here, but um, part of part of what you're called to, um, and what we're all called to in the body of Christ, is are the two are, are, are the two directives that were given by Jesus in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, and I can't go into it too much because there's so much in it, but. Jesus hardly ever spoke about the church, but he did on two occasions. And what he said about the church um, is absolutely so chock-a-block. Matthew 16, you are the church, Peter. Upon you, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? Whatever, you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. OK. 
Okay. So that is really the advancing of the kingdom through sun life where the enemy is going to try and attack you from the outside. And the gates of hell that he was talking about there is a physical place in Israel. It was the darkest, most evil place you could go to. So that's where Jesus chose to reveal the nature of the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against you. But it's like the Spartan army. As you're together, you are better together. And then you, the support that you give to one another in the context of the church can resist the evil day and you can push forward and see the kingdom advance. That's Matthew 16. But Matthew 18 is, if you have anything against anyone, you go to them, just you and them alone. Okay, Matthew 18. And so there is a maximum of how many two people resolving that? There's a maximum of two. Right, uh, the two of you get together and you resolve the issue, and there um, is then resolution. Okay, and that's true for that's true for sin as it is with offence. If you're offended, then you go and actually work it out with that one other person. Right, and then if you do have difficulty, you can call in a third party. Right, uh, that one thing. That one thing of actually resolving it between a maximum of two is um, best practice church government. Okay? So best practice church government is two of you getting together and working it all out. You've got to be really relationally brave. I think personally, I mean, I'm quite courageous in uh, activities. If you dare me to do something, I'll go and jump off a cliff into the water. It's 40 foot high. I've, I've always been like that, right? Um, you know, I would, I would do anything if I was dared, right? So that type of activity courage. But that's nothing compared to relational courage. Where well, you have to go and make something right. Relational courage is something where you initiate and you committed to actually work it out with that one other person. Right. It may have been done to you or you're aware that you've done it to somebody else but, but you know that something's happened there. That's how you become Spartan-like in your church focus. With your armour and your shields close together, uh, you, have, you keep short accounts and nothing is ever allowed to fester right, for any length of time. Um, it may not be culturally something that um, is, is very much what you like, um, but it, it is very biblical. And I'd encourage you to have a shot at having a go at it. Another real key in terms of alignment is what I call um, relational alignment. So you're relationally aligned horizontally, right? But to be really strongly aligned in your relationship with the elders and the leaders of the church and that you, that you line up and you don't allow anything to ever separate you. In terms of being better together, you can't have that unless there is strong uh, relational alignment with those that are leading you. And, you know, the eldership team, the pastoral team... And, 
So there's a reaffirmation of your commitment. And you say, look, I just want you to know I'm with you relationally. It was a major revelation to me years ago that you could actually have a relationship with a leader. <laughs> uh, they are people. Okay. And have you discovered that? Uh, leaders are people. And you can actually then get close to them and then they really appreciate the initiation. And then, of course, you know, they're called to lay their lives down as a shepherd to the sheep um, and they'll never stop doing that. But relational alignment is a real key. And in terms of our mission and the body of Christ that I'm aware of here in Perth, right, um, our alignment with one another, okay, to the shared uh, values and vision of the church, but also relational alignment with, with those who are serving amongst us. So finally... Here are some, um, just a summary. A church that has core values and a vision that is worth living for and dying for, dot, 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 the western suburbs of Perth. Number two, when aligned with the values and the calling and vision of that church, that vision will succeed, all right? Um, but with strong alignment with the core values and relational alignment with the apostolic founding circle. Uh, there is a founding circle. Um, and, you know, that would obviously include Bin and Tran and others, all right? But the reaffirmation of your relationship calling with that group. It's not that it's a... It's not that it's a dominating thing. It's not even an expectation. Last thing that Ben and the other team would actually ever want to say is that. But um, through your love and your service and your words, you reaffirm, you reaffirm, you reaffirm. And that is strength. That is strength in, in, uh, in terms of how the actual church is meant to play out. And then, of course, Matthew 16 18 and in this way we can be better together right